0: This is Indian Noir, India's most critically acclaimed horror and crime storytelling podcast. Follow Indian Noir on at Indian Noir on Instagram. You are now listening to the complete season two of His Night Begins. Virat made two stops on the way to the Iron Sons Depot. wants to collect explosives from Ledu Vinayc, who gave him three small blocks of C4. What sort of damage are we talking about? Ledoux cleaned his ears with a bud. What sort of damage are you looking to cause? Level a small office or a few vehicles. It will do just fine, Ledou said, pressing the bud deeper into his ears. Usual method Yep. stick it to the desired surface, "'flick that red switch on the transmitter "'and press the green button on the remote when you are ready,' "'he said, throwing a small, chunky, battery-shaped remote at Virat. "'How long? "'Once I have pressed this button.' "'Instant,' Ledu said, "'analyzing the brown wax at the end of the bud. "'They shook hands and exchanged the goods for money.' Then Virat stopped at the petrol station and rang Nirmala. Darling, it's so good to hear from you. Virat just breathed. Hello? You there? Is everything okay? Yeah. What happened? This is an unusual call. Just... Oh yeah? You miss me? Silence. Baby... I just wanted to hear your voice. I don't think you are okay. Got to go. Vinod bought a Diet Coke and some chewing gum and filled up the Jeep. Then he opened the boot and looked at the long rectangular case. It had been a while since he had used an M16 rifle with a scope. Earlier, a quick call to Ramalingam Chettiar yielded some information on the proprietors of Iron Sons, father-son transport barons, Nadesh and Ramesh Iyer. Ayur. The Iyers were feudal landlords. They had been so for nearly a century. They owned almost a quarter of the grazing grounds in the state. They were in cattle trade, the palm oil business, and also ran a transport company. Chetiyar told him that they were suspected of using their trucks for illegal arms trade, transportation of criminals and aiding sex slavery rackets. Virat was hoping he didn't have to use the rifle. He preferred close kills, but he also believed in being prepared and getting the job done because the Ayers seemed like people who would have hired guns protecting them. Have you prayed to your mother today? Nareshayar said, pointing to the picture of his wife. Ramesh gave him a guilty smile. How can you forget? Appa, I prayed every other day this week. You must pray to her every day. She was a Mahalakshmi, you know. Ramesh shook his head and prayed, just to place his father. I can't believe she's gone, Naresh said. A yellow flame flickered in the reflection of the black and white photo of a lady in a Kanchipuramsari with a large emerald necklace. Her hair was up in a bun and covered in jasmine flowers. Naresh closed his eyes and wished her eternal peace, wherever she was. It will be three years this November, he said. Damesh approached his father and gently kissed his bald head. Naresh gripped the arms of his son tightly, hoping to wish away the pain of his loss. He had met his wife at a Carnatic music concert in Tirunelveli. She was singing Kalyani Raga from the stage in a yellow sari. Naresh had lost his heart to the voice. He waited for her backstage and asked her to write down her address on a piece of paper. Naresh always liked to joke to his son that she was not at all shy to provide details. I walked straight into her house and asked her father for her hand without batting an eyelid, he used to say with a laugh. She had given him 33 years of marriage that was blissful and memorable. Then a bout of fever took her away on a rainy summer afternoon. At least she left me with the son, Naresh thought. Damesh, an MBA graduate from a prestigious UK university, was the apple of his eye. Diligent, trustworthy, responsible and intelligent, he was everything a parent could ask for in a child. When so many of his business friends were lamenting the fact that their children were incapable of taking ownership of their empires, Naresh had no worries on that front. Legal or illegal, this was their inheritance, and Ramesh was every bit his father's son when it came to preserving business deals and the constant flow of money to their coffers. Naresh was in the process of looking for a bride for Ramesh from one of the rich families down south, which would further solidify his position as a man of power and wealth. Wedding, grandkids, he had so much to look forward to before he left this earth to meet his darling wife in heaven. Has the truck left with the girls? Neresh inquired. Suddenly, Damesh's mobile rang. Hello? Ha. Yeah. Ha, ha. Yes. Good. Neresh played with the paperweight on the table. Ramesh put the phone back in his pocket and said, They got him. Good! You asked them to bring the journalist here? Yes, they will be here soon. The television, which was on mute, flashed images of the attack on Ranjaset's brothel. Put the volume up, son, Naresh said. Father and son listened to the frenzied reporter on site. He mentioned that Ranja Seth had been found murdered in his garage. A senior investigator was suggesting it was a mob hit that they rammed into the compound with several four-wheel drives and took out Seth and his guards. According to the news anchor, who finished off the segment, rival brothel king Paramveer Singh was a chief suspect at this stage. Is our truck back from Ranjaset's Seth's brothel? Naresh inquired in an alarmed voice. Should be here in a few hours. That Surjit Singh makes far too many stops on the way to entertain his dick, Ramesh said. Fuck. Call him, Naresh said angrily. Ramesh tried the driver's phone a few times, then he hung up and shook his head. Hmm. Marish's sigh filled the room. Don't worry, Abba. Surjit never picks up his phone. He will be here soon. They didn't mention our truck in the report anyways. Keep trying him though. I will kill that fucker when he gets back. Ramesh nodded. Naresh kept watching the news. A report on a new breed of dog a rich socialite's wife had imported from Switzerland. Ranja did manage to rub off people the wrong way at times. Do you remember the last time we spoke to him about the increase in our rate? Naresh said. Ramesh nodded. That low-caste fucker thinks he can put a set at the end of the name and boss people like us who have royal blood in our veins. He was a tad offensive about the whole issue. Ramesh agreed. I wanted to put a bullet in his head right there. Ramesh laughed at his father's temper. ''Stop laughing. I was going to end our business with that untouchable anyways. We have other players who are willing to pay more. So good riddance, I say.'' Neresh spat into a copper vessel next to him. ''Well, at least he wasn't killed in a police raid, Appa. As long as our business is safe.'' ''I want you to get a few more guards though, as a precaution.'' ''Yes, father,'' Ramesh said.'' The road stretched ahead of him like an unending ribbon, but Virat was nearly at his destination. A lot of things worth remembering. A lot of things you could forget. Diwali, ten years ago. Virat was listening to his daughter's favourite radio station. He was driving home with the two kids in the back The kids always used to sing along on long drives A woman in a large sedan cut him off Causing him to nearly swerve onto oncoming traffic Hey! He shouted at her The cars in front of her came to a stop at the lights He was in a foul mood already Diwali always did that to him It reminded him of his brother's death He stepped out and approached the lady's driver's seat. I am sorry, madam. That is not the way to drive around, especially in this crazy holiday traffic. I have two kids at the back. The middle-aged lady, with horrible makeup on, spat her chewing gum at him. Virat pulled a steel pipe from the median and smashed in the glass of the lady's imported car. The woman sat in her car, screaming her head off. Then he got back in his car and drove off. The kids were gently sobbing in the back seat. Shut up, or I will give you a reason to cry! He turned around and shouted at them. When they got home, the kids ran to Ravina and told her what happened. What is this, Virat? In public? In front of your kids? Why can't you control yourself? Virat, who was sitting on the couch, tearing up the special issue of a news magazine, did not look up. Answer me! What will people think of us? He started ripping the paper noisily. Virat? He stood up and rushed at her and pushed her against the wall. The kids watched on with terrified eyes as Virat grabbed their mum by her neck. Do not lecture me on how to conduct myself in public. The kids cried. Why don't you just kill me and the kids? Ravina said tearfully. Virat let her go and walked out of the house. There was no Diwali in the Nariman household that year. Naresh Iyer had his son and one of his goons tie the journalist to a pole in the warehouse. He watched as the man in his late thirties, with wild curly hair and an unkempt beard, struggled and spat at his tormentors. He's a fiesty one, isn't he? Naresh commented. Yes, Appa, Ramesh said. Naresh got up from his seat and grabbed a tire iron that lay on a nearby table. I had warned you to stay out of my business. He paused and rotated the tool and examined it closely. But you had to write about my drug plantations. I don't understand what is wrong with you media people. I'm not harming anyone. I wish that was the only illegal thing you did, Ayer, the journalist said. Oho! Oh, so you are fond of other things as well. <laughs> Very good. Very good. The Mesh and the thug laughed. Your business is to make the lives of people like me difficult so that you can make a living. You see how unfair this is. The prisoner scoffed. I have all this land, son. What is a farmer to do these days? The yield is bad from normal crops. Water is hard to come by and expensive. All my work is saved in my office computer. Harming me is not going to prevent my work from being published, the journalist said. Oh yeah? He's clever, isn't he? (laughs) Naresh said, feigning shock at the revelation. Ramesh Ayar shook his head and grinned. We don't care about your story. We got you here because we need some fertilizer. What? The journalist asked. Naresh swung the tire iron into the journalist's kneecap. He screamed in pain. A loud sound outside. Ramesh looked around in surprise. Did you hear that? The thug shook his head. Naresh was too focused on the interrogation. Sorry, let's even it out. He broke the other kneecap as well with a sickening crunch. The journalist vomited. A wet stain spread down his pants. The journalist had passed out. Wake him up, Naresh instructed. The thug poured some water on his face and slapped him a few times. I want him to be awake when I split open his head, Naresh said. The journalist opened his eyes partially and mumbled incoherently. Rotting human body makes for a fine fertilizer, son, Naresh said, as he brought down the weapon on the journalist's head, splitting it open like a ripe fruit. What is that? I heard it this time, Athak said. Apa. That sounds like a gun, Damesh said. Don't stand around here. Investigate, you fool. Naresh roared at the guard. Damesh pulled out a handgun and prepared to step out. No, 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 no. You stay here with me, Naresh said. When the guard exited, both father and son headed for the office. Virat waved away flies as he scanned the landscape of jutting rocks and tall shrubs. Not a living thing in sight. Then he turned the scope on his sniper rifle towards the Iron and Sons compound, hidden from the rest of the world in the middle of nowhere. He had watched the father and son duo enter the main buildings and counted four guards outside. He looked at his watch. It was ten minutes past five. The sun would be setting in an hour. Virat was perched on a large rock just outside the compound, well hidden by trees. He had been watching them for an hour now, carefully studying their patrolling patterns, determining the quickest possible way to pop them. Virat timed the first shot to the scream of the journalist, and dropped the guard at the gate. The shot was still loud. He prepared the rifle for a second shot and waited. Again, a horrible scream. The second guard, who was perched on top of a truck, fell. He saw a guy heading towards the warehouse. Vidard put a bullet in him before he got anywhere near the door. His brain matter splattered against the white walls. The fourth guard, who was smoking a cigarette close to the wall on the western side of the compound, had disappeared from his field of vision. For all he knew, he could have been spotted, and the man was creeping towards his hiding place to kill him. Virat slung the rifle over his shoulder and sprinted towards the gate, and pressed his back to it. He heard footsteps. Virat was right. The guard was on to him. But he probably wasn't expecting the sniper to be on the other side of the gate. Not today, champ. Virat said and shot the man through the gate, guided just by his voice. He nailed the challenger right in the neck. Virat snuck into the compound and ran from one truck to the other, using it as a cover to avoid any shooters within the building. Virat stopped and took in deep breaths. He slowly peeked out from the corner of a vehicle. Another guard with his revolver drawn emerged from within the warehouse. These guys are amateurs, Virat thought. He brought the guard in his crosshairs and sent a bullet through his head. As Virat approached the office, he planted the explosives on some of the vehicles. Papa, who could it be? Police? Demish said fearfully as they entered the office adjoining the warehouse. No, we would have been warned if it was the law. This is someone else. Naresh picked up the land phone to ring the numbers of some local goons in his employment. No dial tone. Bastards, cut the line! Naresh said, slamming the phone down. He pulled out his Nokia. The bad thing about basing your illegal activities in an isolated area was the shitty reception on the mobile phones. Most of the calls he tried to make did not connect. When one finally did, a child answered the phone and said his father was in the toilet. Ringing someone? Virat's disembodied voice sent a chill through their bodies. Ramesh fired his small pistol in the direction of the door. Not there. You guys are bad shots. This time, the voice came from a different place. Ramesh fired at the window. Naresh scrolled through his contact list, praying for someone to heed his call. Vidart laughed outside. Ramesh randomly fired holes in the wall of the office and emptied his cartridge. Naresh dialed another number. Busy. Useless fuckers, he said. He cut the call and tried another one and got someone on the line. Point in, listen! We are trapped! We need... Virat interrupted him. I'm done playing. Hide and seek. He burst through the back door and shot Ramesh on the shoulder with a Colt M1991A1. Just as he was loading another cartridge... Ramesh thought his right hand was going to fall off as the pain radiated through his upper body. Ramesh! Neresh shouted. Virat landed a hard punch on his face. The mobile fell off Naresh's hand. He groaned as he clutched the left side of his head. Virat sat both father and son at the table and laid down the deal. I will let your son go if you tell me where I can find Sai Kali Bhakt. He is somewhere in Nepal. I don't know where exactly, Naresh said. His voice was devoid of any ancestral pride or the arrogance of his wealth. He knew the killer meant business. Is there someone who can tell me? Virat had his gun leveled at them. Damesh nodded eagerly. Nareesh glared at his son in anger. Ah, a cooperative, sensible young man. I think you will survive this ordeal, son, Birat said. Who ordered this hit? Nareesh asked. He tried to sound braver than he was. I did. And I am the best in the business, so I took the contract myself. Why? Virat took out a picture of Anya from his wallet and showed it to the two men. Because you forced my hand. The men stared at it blankly, but Virat knew they were playing him. Where did you send this girl? To, Damesh blurted. Shut up! We don't have to tell this thug anything, Naresh said. A tense minute passed, Virat pointed the gun at Naresh's head. Urine pulled next to Damesha's shoes. We send the girl in the photo to Sai Kali Bhakt, Demesh spoke up. Virat sighed. Kali wanted her personally, so she was not touched by anyone, Damesha said, his voice quivering with fear, because the prick wanted her All to himself. The metallic taste of bloodlust in Virat's mouth. Did you send her to him directly? We sent her to Rahman Tariq. Just like the other girls. He is the chief of border police at Sinali. Ah, the border town between our great country and Nepal. Virat had heard the name before. This Rahman guy knows... Sai Kali Bhatt, Virat inquired. He oversees the transfers. Ah, we don't know who makes the actual delivery to Kali. Virat nodded once. He has told you everything you wanted to know. Now let my son go, please, Naresh said. Sure, Virat said. He placed his gun on the table. I need to give him my car keys. Naresh said. Permission granted. Vidat said with a smile. Naresh pulled out the keys from his pocket and extended it to his son. Here, take it, take it. No, Appa. No, I can't leave you here, Appa. No, Appa. Ramesh begged, grabbing his father's thigh with his good hand. Blood flowed freely from the wound in his right shoulder. Sir, sir, please let him go, sir. He will give you money, sir, Namesh said to Virat. Naresh Iyer slapped his son a few times. Stop crying like a coward and get out of here. Go to a hospital. Ayyo, sir, I have lost my mother. I can't lose my father as well. Please, sir. Namesh fell on Virat's feet. Shut up, you fool, and go before he changes his mind, Naresh said. Damesh stopped abruptly. Go on, son, the dad said. Make a clean start. Leave behind your father's crimes. Go on. The looked at his father, tears flowing freely down his face. Go, go, his father said. Lemish grabbed the car keys from his father's hand and stood up slowly and exited the room. They grow up real fast, don't they? Vidad said. Naresh didn't respond. He just stared at his wife's photo. Do you remember my girl? Yes, I think so. Was she nice? Naresh glanced at his mobile phone on the ground. Ponin was probably still listening because the call had connected through. Or maybe Ramesh could get help. He was still hopeful that he could get out of this mess alive. Virat picked out a small remote control from his pocket. What is that? Virat stood Naresh up and dragged him by the collar out of the office and asked him to climb inside one of the trucks. What are you going to do to me? Naresh asked. What you did to me? Virat said. You said you wouldn't hurt my son. Time is running out. Naresh obliged and Virat cuffed his hand to the steering wheel. Sixty seconds before you and your son blow up. Virat tapped Naresh on the shoulder and jumped out of the cabin. What? What are you saying? Virat ran from the compound as fast as he could. A Ganesha idol attached to the dashboard of the truck mocked Naresh as he struggled to escape the handcuffs. What has this bastard done? he said to himself. Naresh said a prayer to all his favorite gods. He opened the glove box and spotted a small screwdriver tucked away in the corner. He picked it up excitedly and smiled. The vehicle blew up along with another truck in the compound. Ramesh had barely managed to describe his father's kidnapper to the gunda Ponin Gerrida on his mobile as he was driving recklessly on the dirt road that led away from the warehouse to the highway when his Mercedes-Benz Blow up. <laughs> Earlier, Naresh's call had connected before the phone fell down on the ground. Punin Girida, Naresh favourite muscle for hire, had listened to the conversation between Virat and his two captives. It cut off, and then the brave call from Ramesh. It didn't sound good. Onin jumped in his car and headed straight for the depot. He could see the smoke rising from the warehouse from miles away. He had a sinking feeling that his employers hadn't made it out of the situation alive. He was about to turn left into the side road that led to the truck depot, when he saw a Jeep Wrangler, driven by a tall man with a shaved head, exit in a hurry. Puddin decided to follow the Jeep Wrangler. He badly wanted to get his hands on the bastard who had killed his employers. It began as a stabbing pain, on the right side of his head. Within a matter of seconds, Virat's vision blurred, and then bright flashes of strobe lighting, accompanied by an intense sensation of his head being crushed, made him lose control of the car. Virat slammed hard on the brakes. (sighs) This is not good enough, he thought. It was a lonely stretch of the highway, and not the best place to roll a car. Virat drew on all his focus to steady the vehicle. Then, he blacked out for a second, and before he knew, the car veered off the highway, down an embankment, and came to a stop in a paddy field. The front of the car crumpled slightly at the impact, but otherwise, it was intact. Virat sat in the wrangler for a while, hands on his head. The smell of wet mud and rancid water made him sick. He looked for painkillers in his glove box and found one tablet in the container. He hadn't eaten or slept properly over the last three days. Age is starting to catch up with me, he thought. He popped the last pill and took out the flask from his inner pocket and shook it. It was empty. He swore and swallowed the pill. Virat tried to open the car door, but the pain became intense again, and he had to abort the attempt and lay on the car seat. "'Are you okay?' A gruff voice startled him. He tried to focus on the face, peering in through the window. The only thing he could make out was a gold chain reflecting the moonlight.' I'm fine. Virat opened the car door and stepped out into the balmy night. His leather shoes sank into the water and mushy soil. Crickets and frogs orchestrated a cacophony of night sounds. The man who stood beside his car was dark-skinned, tall, with a thick moustache. He wore an orange silk kurta and pyjama that shimmered in the moonlight. Did you fall asleep? No, I blacked out, Vidat said. The man tapped on the roof of the jeep. I was heading home when I saw you go off-road, man said. Thanks, I'm glad you checked in, but I'm okay. I would appreciate it if you could keep this accident on the quiet, I don't want the police involved. It's a big headache. I can do one better. I can send you in a coffin back to where you came from, the man said. Virat didn't hear him clearly, and he did not see the punch directed at his sternum. Punin's hard gold rings embossed on Virat's skin through his shirt. Virat reeled back in pain and sat down on the mud somewhere two frogs were having a croaking competition virat did not envision dying in a place like this punin struggled forward through the mud and picked virat up and this time smashed his fist into the side of his head then he reached inside virat's jacket and pulled his gun out and put it in the back of his pajama punin turned virat around and smashed his face into the mud Vidat tasted the fertilizer laden soil and water and nearly vomited. Punin let him go and stood back. Vidat sat up. Just what I needed to get rid of that headache, he said. Punin grabbed Vidat on both sides of his head and said Who sent you? A bit of context would be nice, Vidat said. I know you have blown up. Both the Ayers. Tell me why you did it. <sniffs> Vidat spat on his face. Bad move. Ponin punched him in the side of the head again. Virat saw black for a second, then wavering lines of light. Your treatment plan works better than the doctor who gave me those stupid pills, Virat said. Another bone-crunching fist this time to the side of Vidart's jaw. Vidart felt one of his teeth come loose. I want you to stop being a smartass and tell me the truth before I snap off your fingers one by one, the assailant said. That last punch and the pain of his teeth falling out gave Vidart a moment of clarity. And he remembered he had a penknife strapped to the inside of his left leg. ponin grabbed onto Virat's collar and tried to pull him up, but Virat was not an easy man to lift, and the goon grunted as he tried and failed again and again. Virat used the opportunity to whip the blade out and stabbed the man through the side of his knee. The man let go of Virat. Punin fell on his back with a splash, clutching his injured knee. Virat stood up and rocked on the spot for a moment. Blinking rapidly and breathing deep to focus clearly, the man was now reaching behind his back. My gun, Virat thought. Virat leapt on the man and pressed his thick forearm against the man's windpipe. The man's right hand was trapped behind his back now and he was unable to pull the gun because of Virat's weight on him. He started to claw at Vidat's face with a free hand. Vidat felt the goon's sharp nails draw blood. He then thrust the blade into his opponent's neck and chest repeatedly till Punian stopped moving. He retrieved the sim and scattered the rest of the pieces around the field. Vidat's face was a bloody mess. He could feel the exposed flesh on both sides. He needed stitches. He retrieved his gun and went back to his SUV and started it. It struggled at first. Come on. Come on, Mary Jan. He was sure that with a bit of coaxing, his four-wheel drive Wrangler was going to comply. Virat's head was clear now. No pain, the punches sure helped. The engine rumbled to life. He reversed up the gentle slope of the embankment. His attacker's hatchback was parked at the top. He maneuvered the car around it and parked in the front. He sat there silently listening to the night, taking deep breaths in. Then he opened the dashboard, took out a detonator, extra explosives and a copper wire. He exited the car and placed them in the front seat of his assailant's vehicle. Then he got back in his car and sped off in search of a motel. Vidard parked in front of the fuel station and tried to make a call from his mobile, but it was totally wrecked from the water in the field. He went to the outside toilet and checked his face in the mirror. It was just as he suspected, cuts and bruises, as if he had just finished a twelve round boxing match. He washed away the blood, and when it kept bleeding, he pressed paper towels on it and held it there. He tried to wipe away the dirt and grime on his clothes, but it was of no use, because the thick mud from the field stuck to him with a vengeance. He didn't want his face on the petrol station's security camera, so he didn't go in. He walked to a motel opposite the gas station on the other side of the highway. It was an old joint with a broken, vacant rooms-available board attached precariously to rusted metal poles. It didn't even have a name. The clerk, an old lady in a maxi, was fast asleep on her chair, her lips quivering and nostrils flaring as she snored. He couldn't find any cameras anywhere. Virat tapped on the table and the woman woke up with a startle and looked at him and let out a little scream. I had a little accident. I'm just on my way back from the hospital. Feel like resting for a bit before I drive home. Oh, you sure scared me looking like that. Are you okay? I mean, it looks bad. Do you need painkiller's love? Vida doubted he was the first man to walk in here, looking all banged up. It was exactly the kind of joint Men like him would choose to hide in. Thanks, just a single room. You sure? Doesn't look like they stitched you up well. I hate hospitals, and I have a fear of needles. Doesn't help. Oh, I'm a bit like that too. I hated it when I had to go in for my hip surgery, the woman said. My wife will be here in a few hours with clothes for me, Virat said, looking down at his dirty clothes. I can give you some, meanwhile, if you want. No, thank you. Your wife must be really worried. Virat smiled politely, hoping she would just get on with it. The woman opened a weathered registry with the picture of a Hindu god on it. Any chance I could get covered parking? he asked. He was pretty sure the attacker on the field was one of Ayur's men. Others could be driving around, looking for his vehicle. We have a garage at the back, but my car is in it. I can pay you extra. Uh, Okay. Virat made a call to Nirmala from the public phone inside the office. He reached her voicemail. He gave her the address and the room number and told her she will need to bring the medical kit. Then he paused for a second and said, and also a change of clothes. He paid the woman and walked to the parking lot of the motel and watched his car parked across the road near the petrol station to check if anyone was snooping around. When he was convinced the coast was clear, Birat walked across the highway, started his car and drove it back to the motel's small garage. As he walked to the room, a man smoking a cigarette in the motel's car park whistled to him. Birat stopped. He was ready to pull his piece, if required. You are staying alone? The man asked him. What business is it of yours? Bidat responded. The man wore a death metal t shirt and stonewashed jeans. He had a French beard and the right side of his face was scarred. Oh yes just, just checking if you're married, he said. Again. Why do you care? Bidat asked. I, I, I can organise some entertainment for you. Like what? Ah, ah, girls, I have some young ones, if that's your taste. How young, Vidat growled. The man looked around. He was spooked by Vidat's tone. Oh, 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 oh nothing, no, nothing, forget it. The man skulked and exited the car park, and crossed the highway hastily. Virat went to his room, and threw his clothes in the bin, and took a shower. He watched the dirt and the blood flow down the drain. The warm water falling on his skin felt good. His sore muscles needed it, The bleeding had thankfully stopped, but his headache was back again. Then he went to bed and lay there naked, watching the ceiling fan creak away. The heat and the pain lulled him to sleep. In his dream, he was at Anya's graduation party. She looked cute in her black gown and hat. Ravina was standing to the right of Anya. She looked stunning in an electric blue gown. Where is your brother? Virat asked Anya. There he is, she pointed. Praveen was in a corner, shooting up drugs into his vein. Virat lost his cool. He shouted at his son in front of the guests. Ravina, who was cheerful and chatty till then, made an angry face at him and walked out. Davina, why are you being angry at me? He followed her. She exited the room and slammed the door behind. Virat raced to the door and turned the knob repeatedly, with all his strength, but couldn't open it. You spoilt brat, he said, turning around. But his father had replaced his son. The old man was wearing brown pants with suspenders and a crisp white shirt and thick glass spectacles. He had a large cane in his left hand. Why don't you remove your shorts and turn around? His father said. Vidard started sweating. He looked around, and the guests did not have faces. Anya stood in front of her cake, fearfully. Virat then turned to his father and said, I hate you. His father burst out laughing. He was standing in a pool of blood. You know whose blood this is, don't you? Yes, I do, Virat said. Why don't you join him as well? His father said with a cruel smile. Virat picked up a chair next to him and walked deliberately towards his father. I am going to smash your face in, just like you did to him. His father laughed louder. He was a small boy, you bastard, Virat said, his voice tinged with rage and sadness. Virat brought down the chair on his tormentor again and again. Again, but it passed through him as if he was made of air. The old man roared in delight. "'You might want to check on your daughter,' he said. But dropped the chair and turned round. He found Anya's severed head on the cake. A lighted candle was burning on top of her head. Virat tried to scream, but he couldn't. The people around him dissolved into darkness. A cold fear gripped his soul. Virat? Virat? He heard a voice calling out to him. He wasn't sure where it was coming from. The room was spinning. Virat? Virat, wake up! When Virat opened his eyes, Nirmala was standing over him with a concerned look on her face. She was wearing a blue tank top and black pants. A crocodile leather belt with a large buckle was wrapped tightly around her waist. Darling what have you done to your face? Vidat sat upon the bed in a hurry. Sleeping naked without locking the door Oh shit Vidat said. Anyone could have walked in and blown his brains to bits. How are you? How are you? Vidat asked. You're asking me? Little Miller said. You look like shit. Tell me about it. Vidat said, cracking a rare smile. It hurt to even smile. I am not going to ask you what happened. Nirmala said. You know that is the rule. Vidat responded. Yet I have come running to look after you, she said. I will call someone else. Vidat said, reaching for the phone. Nirmala put both her hands on his shoulder and gave him a stern look. Don't be like that. Virat lay down on the bed. Nirmala opened her medical kit and cleaned his wounds and stitched them. Virat didn't wince even once. He lay, watching Nirmala, running his hands gently over her sharp features. Do you have any ice in the fridge by any chance? She asked. Vidat nodded. He headed to the windows and checked the surroundings for any activity. Quiet, nothing unusual. He had made a mental note of the cars parked in the lot. Nirmala's was the only new one. When he was satisfied, he checked the door and locked it properly. Then he grabbed some ice "'and wrapped it in a thin towel and pressed it against his face. "'Look at my bag,' Namila said with a smile. "'Virard found a small bottle of Jack Daniels. "'A woman who knows my heart,' he said. "'Just the right medicine for you.' "'Virard grabbed his gun and approached the bed with deliberate steps "'and sat next to her. "'He gently kissed her on the cheek.' Is that for the whiskey? she asked. He pointed to his facial wounds with the barrel of the gun. Thank you. She landed a soft kiss on his lips. He placed his gun under the pillow. Virat ran his hands on her thighs. You are so naughty. Half of your face is smashed in and this is all you can think of, Nirmala said. I'm just giving you what you want, he said. And what do I want? Narmila asked. Virat kissed the side of her neck and ran his hands on her back. She took his scent in, masculine and bloody. They kissed each other passionately, like it was the last time they would be together. He helped her undress and threw her clothes in a pile on the top of the small couch. I want you, she said. She climbed on him and took his manhood in her. She rode him slowly, relishing the pleasure. Virad watched her toned olive body move up and down on him, her breasts rising and falling, her hair flailing in the air. He couldn't help thinking she was his salvation. When she came hard, he hugged her tightly and contained her moans, his heart beating wildly. He didn't want the night to end. He needed her to keep his nightmares away. As they made love, he kept an eye on the windows, always checking, always ready to pull his gun. Gulab got the feeling that the brothers were leaving her alone because she was a gift for Kali Saab. She knew this because the elder brother recounted stories of what they did to women they transported. The younger one giggled as his brother pointed out spots where they parked and gang-raped the girls before throwing them back in the van. They did not speak to her directly. She was merely cargo they were transporting to a customer, an inanimate object. They drove for two days through winding and steep roads, stopping occasionally to eat at roadside dhabas. The brothers ate while Gulab was securely bound, gagged and hidden in the van. They would drive on and the men would pull up at deserted stops and untie her and let her eat takeaway food. They would then tie a leash to her neck and lead her into the bush to let her do her business. This must be what it's like to be an animal, she thought. Gulab slept or pretended like she was sleeping most of the way. Once, she saw the younger brother watch her intently. She didn't want to imagine his lurid thoughts. When she did sleep, her nightmares were full of his ugly grin. She would wake up every time the van hit a pothole. The world outside was a diorama seen through black-tinted windows. It started to look alien to her. They stopped at a few police checkposts, but the driver produced envelopes filled with notes inside his license book, and they were waved through without even a cursory check. In one instance, she made muffled sounds through the gag. She was pretty sure the officer heard her. He glanced at her through the driver's window and then stepped back, letting the van through. The slow demise of her hope was unbearable. When they reached the farm, they pulled her out of the van and handed her over to a large man with a handlebar moustache. He wore a white vest, a blue lungi and a yellow belt with a knife dangling from it. They called the man Ponychami. He promptly grabbed a brown paper bag from the brothers, which Gulab suspected was money. He looked into the bag once, and turned his head to the right, as if to dismiss the couriers. Enjoy your last few days, the elder brother said. The younger one started laughing uncontrollably, thumping his brother on the back. Gulab watched them in rage, her vision blurred by hot tears as they jumped in the van and drove away. The farmhouse was set on top of a small hillock and surrounded by dry grass as long as the eye could see. Goats with dirty fur roamed the vast landscape, bleating and shitting and nibbling on the shrubs. Mountains, otherworldly and colossal, surrounded them like sentinels. The man untied her hands and removed the gag from her mouth. Come on, he said rudely. The long trip in the van had made her legs stiff and sore. Gulab hobbled outside the side of the house and followed the man as he walked in the direction of the cow shed behind the main building. It was built with mud bricks and featured a thatched roof. Two large cows, tied to a wooden railing, chewed on grass and watched her dispassionately as Punachami led her to a small room built into the shed. She stood in front of it, "'with fearful eyes. "'Do you need a special invitation?' "'Gulab moved closer to the door. "'He pushed her inside and locked the door. "'It was empty. "'The smell of urine overwhelmed her senses, "'and all manners of flies explored her skin. "'I am now the equivalent of a piece of shit,' she thought.' Sonali was a sprawling border town, with dirty concrete blocks, cattle markets, street vendors selling smuggled goods and dirt roads. A vast savanna of dry grass and stunted trees radiated out of its borders. Tall mountains rose in the distance, snow-capped and cold. It was a town that could have died slowly and painfully and forgotten by history had it not been on the trading route between India and Nepal. The highway that cuts through the town brought demand for mechanics, chefs, hoteliers and sex workers. Before long, evil men who smuggled guns, drugs and human beings made Sonali their home. The man who controlled the gates of this kingdom and maintained its sordid reputation was Inspector Rahman Tariq with the Border Protection Force. He was six feet tall with very curly hair. He was lean to the point of looking unhealthy. He had severe eczema on his hands and so he wore black gloves. His face was covered in freckles and his dark brown eyes fixed everyone with an inquisitorial gaze. He had already built marble houses for his three wives in his hometown in Dagestan, and he was working towards owning a chain of liquor stops before retirement. Nothing escaped his hawk-like gaze. Beasts could roam the jungle that was Sonali and take what they wanted as long as the king was given his cut, and those who paid homage to him faithfully had his complete and unwavering loyalty. Rahman was presently checking the license of some tourists on motorcycles when one of the trucks belonging to a sex-trafficking syndicate he took bribes from turned up. Ask them to pull up next to the tree, he instructed Constable Govindan the Nair, a man from the old school of honest cops. Nair was a middle-aged father of two with an early onset of arthritis that had left him limping. He had worked with Rahman for the last five years. He detested his boss's corrupt ways, criminal activities, and mistreatment of staff. Nair had complained to the Internal Affairs Board several times, anonymously, but refused to go on record because he knew of Rahman's influence with the criminality. He had heard of several instances where people who crossed him or threatened to expose his criminal activities had ended up at the bottom of a ravine. And there were several in this part of the world. He had two kids to feed. He was no good dead to them. Rahman walked up to the driver's side of the truck and looked up at the skinny of 17-year-old at the wheel. Take the truck to my quarters. Rahman said. But sab, I have to get the stock to Chandan's in a couple of hours. Chandan's was an anything-goes brothel across the border, specifically catering to sick fucks. Needless to say, the girls who passed through the doors never returned. That is what the guy who drove the last load said as well, and I let it go. Once in a while, I do like my treats." Your bosses know about this, Roman said, scratching his hands. But we pay you well, Sahib, the driver said with a stupid grin. Rahman pulled open the door and dragged the driver down to the ground. He pressed his leg down on the driver's back. You filthy dog! You presume to tell me what my entitlements are! Nair ran towards his boss. Uh, no, sir. People are watching. Please. Not here. Rahman gave Nair a dirty look that shut him up. He reached down and hid the driver on the back of his head. The other motorists watched in horror as the man cried out in pain. Rahman picked him up by the collar and said, If you don't do as I say, I will pour petrol over you and burn you in front of these people. And you know what? No one will dare come to your rescue. The driver nodded vigorously, tears streaming down his cheeks. Naya, drive me to my cottage. I need to inspect the goods closely. Rahman flashed him a smile. Nair grimaced and shook his head. He started the department jeep and pulled up beside Rahman, who was busy giving instructions to the officers. I want you to collect a minimum of 50,000 rupees per officer every hour. When Rahman was finally seated, Nair put his foot down on the accelerator and navigated the busy roads of Senali, thronging with tourists, truck drivers and traders. He drove up the steep hill on the eastern part of the town, where many of the richer residents owned houses. Rahman's cottage was painted blue and white. Bougainvillea and cacti grew along its wooden boundary walls. The truck was parked in the front yard. The young driver was standing at the rear of the truck, his arms folded in reverence. Rahman jumped out of the jeep. He approached the back of the truck like a ravenous wolf. Open it, Rahman said. The driver slid the steel lock to the side and swung open the back door. The inside of the truck was painted white, and four young girls lay unconscious on tiny mattresses. Horse tranquilizer? Rahman said. Sometimes they get a bit too rowdy, Saab, the driver said. Roman climbed into the truck and examined the girls. These are some real young flowers you've got here, eh? (laughs) Uh, He noticed that some of them had peed in the mattress. All of them had dry tears on their faces. Flowers that need a nice shower, he said, covering his nose. Nair, who was standing next to the jeep, walked over and peered into the truck. Nair, You can go home now, Raman said. Naya looked pensively at his boss's face, and then he looked at the driver. He glanced at the helpless girls one last time, and then he drove off. Rahman bent down and lifted the girl's clothes and examined them one by one. "'This one. Help me bring her into the house,' he said to the driver while pointing at one of the girls in a red maxi. The driver climbed up and helped Rahman move the girl to his bedroom at the back of the house. Her long flowing hair trailed on the floor as she was taken in. When she was on his bed, Rahman asked the driver to leave. "'Wait outside.' I will try not to take long. Akisab! When the driver left, he slowly spread her legs, drooling with excitement. Govindanaya parked the vehicle at the foot of the hill and watched Rahman's house. He pulled out the photo of his two little girls from his wallet. He pressed them on his forehead and started crying. Virat sat in his jeep, watching Govindanaya. He was on a few different types of painkillers to deal with the thrashing he received from Nareshayar's gunda. He touched the sore parts of his face and winced. Virat peered through his binoculars. The policeman was shaking his head. He could almost hear him wailing. Rahman's cottage was at the top of the hill. Virat stepped out of the vehicle and followed a trail that led through a grove. A quick climb and he reached the wooded area behind the house. The truck driver was leaning against his vehicle, smoking. Virat quietly approached one of the side windows and listened. He could hear Rahman grunting away. The window was slightly ajar. Virat peered through the gap and saw Rahman raping a young girl who was unconscious. He pulled back in disgust and gritted his teeth. Virat wanted to kick open the door and go in and finish the monster. But he needed Roman to answer some questions. That and he wanted to save her, killing the man. He sneaked back to the jeep. the Nair was gone when he got there. So that's why you were crying, he thought to himself. A man with a conscience. Virat needed Govindanayar to set a trap for Rahman. He drove back to town and searched for Govindanayar's police jeep. After nearly half an hour of scouting, he saw the vehicle parked in front of a bar named Barbed Wire. Virat parked on the opposite side of the street and entered the bar. The dimly lit establishment had a counter on the corner and a rack behind it where local brands of whiskey, brandy and rum were displayed. A large fridge stocked with cheap beer stood to its right. The bartender, who were serving a huge line of customers, shouted like a fishwender. Several plastic tables and chairs were spread around the room for patrons. Virat scanned the room and spotted Nair in a corner, sitting alone. He joined him at the table and sat down with a loud thump. He checked out the name on the police badge pinned to the man's left breast pocket. Not the best ambience, Virat said. Get lost, Nair said, taking a sip. Not here for the company, I gather, Pirat said. If you haven't taken a cue from what I said, and don't respect what I can do with the power of my uniform, Govinda Nair said, pulling up his collar, then I'm happy to kick you out of here myself. Mr. Will Kick My Ass, policeman. Is that why you were sitting outside your boss's house? crying while a helpless girl was being raped inside. Stunned silence. Who, who are you? Fear dawned on Nair. Virat smiled and tapped his fingers on the table. Did Kali Saab send you? Virat grabbed the glass that was shaking in Nair's hand and placed it on the table. Why are you here? What do you want? Nair said, attempting to get up. Sit, Virat said, in a commanding voice. Nair slowly sat back in his chair. I am an independent operator. I get rid of scumbags. "Oh, What do you mean? Nair said. Rahman was responsible for my daughter being trafficked across the border and sold to Saikhalibat. Virat pulled out Anya's photo from his wallet and placed it in front of the constable. Nair picked it up and looked at it. I haven't seen her. Not likely, Virat said. If I may ask, uh, what happened to her? Nair asked hesitantly. Virat just bit his lower lip. I need you to tell me when I can get to your boss. And I need you to forget you ever met me. Vidat said. Well, what are you going to do to him? Something you should have done a long time ago. Vidat said. Nair was panicking. He didn't know Vidat and his background. He dreaded to think what would happen to him and his family if the whole thing went pear shaped. Look, uh, I can't help you. I have tried to complain many times, and each time my concerns were dismissed. Rahman is way too powerful. Nair said, No one is more powerful than a bullet. Virat said, without betraying any emotion. I don't know you, man. For all I know, you've been sent by Rahman to test my loyalty to him. Oh, then, you have failed the test, Virat responded. You would be dead by now if that was the case. Nair sat back in his chair and sighed. I don't think you have the balls to keep your daughters safe. When one day Rahman decides to turn up at your home, Vidat said. I don't know, Nair said. He can do whatever he wants in this town. How is he going to cause you problems if he is sleeping cold in his grave? Vidat suggested. Nair sculled his drink and slammed it on the desk. He scanned the bar. He spotted the bartender staring in his direction. Let's get out of here, Naya said. Virat nodded. They exited the bar, Naya hobbling faster than he normally did. He took Virat to a side alley and leaned against the wall. Virat stood next to him. Nair pulled out a cigarette and offered Virat one. Virat raised his hand to indicate he didn't want one. Nair tried many times before he could successfully light the cigarette. Calm down, my friend, Virat said. Nair breathed the smoke in deeply. He remembered the faces of the women in the truck. He goes to the local strip club on Sunday nights, Nair said, almost embarrassed by what he had to share. How do you know this? I used to drive him there, but now he prefers to go by himself. He never misses his outing, come hell or high water, Nair said. I will need directions, Virat said. Nair nodded. I want one more thing from you, Vidat said. Nair watched his face intently. I need everything local law enforcement has got on Sai Kali Bhakt, Virat said. Ah! Oh. This could be very dangerous, Nair offered. You are already down that path, my friend, Virat reminded him. You don't know who you are messing with. Yes, I do. A rotten prick who has been breathing for too long. You're going to take Kali out too? Virat wrote his number down on a piece of paper and gave it to Naya. "'I want you to get back to me by tonight,' Virat said. Then he turned around and walked away into the darkness.' Virat drove up Rogers Hill, named after the British explorer who died in a mountaineering expedition. It was a scenic spot that afforded a view of Senali and the horrors contained within. From sprawling slums, to illegal factories, to brothels, it was truly a custom-built city catering to the criminal enterprises of the world. Virat sat on the bonnet of his jeep, taking in the vista, He popped a few painkillers. He hadn't slept properly in days. It was not just the pain. He was dreaming about the night his father left an inedible mark of terror on his soul. It was the Sera, and most of the neighborhood was at the local fair. His mother was at the temple doing pujas to please the gods and seek their blessings his father had taken part in a gambling session at the local den and lost six months' worth of savings. He drank for several hours, and by the time he reached home, his anger and embarrassment over the loss had turned him into a raging demon. Virat's mother had asked him and his brother Vivek to stay back at home as punishment for their poor grades at school. They were playing cricket inside the house, and just as he walked in, Vivek slammed the ball into the television set, wrecking the picture tube. Virat's father grabbed the cricket bat of the boy, who was two years older than Virat, and beat him repeatedly on his back and his neck. The boy screamed and shouted for help, and then after a while, his body turned limp. Virat had cowered in fear under a table, and watched in horror as life ebbed away from his brother's body. Virat then ran for his life, because he knew his father would turn on him next. Presently, on top of Roger's hill, Virat shivered at that thought. The sun was setting over Sanali, and the evening air brought with it a chill that crept into his soul. His father had gone to prison for fifteen years, and was stabbed to death in a prison fight just weeks before his release. The boogeyman was dead and gone. Yet, he was a fearsome ghost that haunted his nightmares. Birard wondered if it was the guilt over the dead of Anya that made him dream about the horrible man. The possibility that he might have failed to protect his angel that he might have been responsible. He lay on the bonnet of the vehicle, staring at the evening sky. The stars mocked him from their distant homes. From the files that Nair gave Virat, it was clear that Sai Kali Bhakt was a nasty piece of work. Once upon a time, Sai was known as Kanchan Barol, born to an Indian father and a Nepalese mother. His father was a cattle trader and an alcoholic who beat his mother to death with a steel rod for a suspected affair. His father then took his dead wife's younger sister as his wife. The young boy not only had to deal with the sad knowledge that his father had murdered his mother, but also watched helplessly as his aunt suffered the same abuse as his mother. At some stage in his late teens, Kanchan fell in love with his stepmother. Lust and revenge drove him to decapitate his father while he was sleeping. The locals still remembered the severed head sitting on the steps of the local Kali temple, its eyes closed, mouth partly open. Kanshin took over his father's business and expanded his empire by using cattle to move drugs and joining hands with criminal syndicates to run guns across the border. His amazing knowledge of the geography and clout with tribes in the area meant Kanchen was the go-to person for smuggling anything across the border. Somewhere along the line, he got a taste for the pagan beliefs of hill tribes and started believing that sacrificing young virgins to Kali would bring him more success and ward off bad luck. A practice he had successfully engaged in over the last 15 years. Kanchan Parol had transformed into Sai Kali Bhakt through a ritual of blood and death. He brought out the policemen, politicians and judges to become the darling of criminal enterprises around the country. If Rahman Tariq was a king, Sai Kali Bhakt was an emperor. The strip club was located on the outskirts of the town. Complete with velvet carpets and garish wallpaper, it was a house of sin where sinners gathered once darkness fell. Dancing poles erected on raised platforms shimmered in the disco ball's reflections. face was on the mend, but he still felt the pain from every blow like it had happened a moment ago. Virat slowly entered the private booth where Rahman was seated, enjoying the company of a bare-breasted dancer while sipping on his scotch. He slammed the glass on the table and started fondling the girl's breasts, totally oblivious of Virat. Virat coughed. Rahman squinted. In Virat's direction. Who is that? Just a trader with some wares to sell. Name is Challenging, Virat said. Bagarov, I'm having a private time with Miss Nikita here, he said, pinching her lower lip. Virat sat on the couch next to him. Rahman pulled his gun out and waved him off. Hooray! Don't you understand what I'm saying? Scott, Scott! I have something you might be interested in, Vidat said, dropping Anya's photo on the table. Rahman picked it up. His eyes lit up. Mashallah! What an angel! I knew you would like it, Vidat said. How do you know me? Rahman Sahib, everyone in this town knows who you are, and that you are a connoisseur of fine things. Birat said. A smile spread across Brahman's face. You are not here to kidnap me, are you? Just because I'm new to the business doesn't mean you have to insult me, Sahib. Go and the Naya knows me. We've had some uh, dealings, Virat said. That wily bastard. I knew he took bribes, Rahman said with a smile. Please feel free to call him, Virat said. Another dog wanting to please the master. In return for favours, I bet, Rahman said arrogantly. Virat shook his head and smiled. That can come later. Rahman started laughing, and he pressed his gun to Nikita's chest and urged her to laugh as well. Virat joined in. Rahman had another look at the photo. He then finished his drink and wiped his mouth. Where is she? This angel in a motel, Virat said. Rahman waved the stripper off. Nikita stood up, grabbed the empty glass from the table, and left. Rahman shook Virat's hand. You are a good man to do business with, Rahman Sahib, Virat said. Rahman's voice went down to almost a whisper. I have a request. What is it? Virat said, moving closer. "Ah, She needs to be drugged um, during... uh Virat pulled back and smiled. Whatever your heart pleases, Raman Sahib. Okay, <laughs> then what are we waiting for? Let's go, he said, laughing boisterously. You are a good lad, eh? <laughs> when they exited the strip club, Virat pointed to his jeep and said, I'm parked over there. Rahman, who was inebriated, swayed on his feet. "I can drive you," Virat offered. "You will have to drop me back as well, though." Sure, sir." Virat opened the car door for him. Rahman climbed into the seat awkwardly. "So uh, you're sure you can drug this girl? I sure can. I am a specialist. Vidat said as he stuck a needleful of tranquilizer into Rahman's jugular. When Rahman woke up, he started blabbering about someone tricking him. He was tied to a pillar inside a brick hut. A single bulb hung from the roof, casting scary shadows around him. Vidat had chosen the abandoned buildings in the outskirt of the town, with the foreknowledge that he was going to show Rahman what real pain means. Help me! Help! Rahman said, as he became more aware of his surroundings. Vidat stepped out of the shadows and hit him across the face with a brick wrapped in a sock. That should wake you up, Vidat said. Rahman cried in pain and spat out blood and some broken teeth. The trick is to hit in such a way that you take out the teeth, but not break the jaw. Well, well, why? Rahman said. Why do you rape girls who are the age of your daughters? I don't.
1: I don't.
0: Virat swung his weapon at the man's left wrist and broke it. Rahman screamed pathetically. The treat you're here for, as you would have figured out by now, doesn't exist. She was my daughter, and she was killed by Sai Kali Rahman looked at the floor, his eyes revolving in his sockets wildly. Tell me, Vidat said, Lifting Rahman's face up to the light, I don't know much about him. You must let me go, please. Uh, but I can, but, but I can help you find him. I am in the police. Bedat swung the improvised weapon and took out his left elbow. A spray of blood and saliva erupted from Rahman's mouth as he screamed in agony. I will break every bone in your body till you tell me where he is. He lives in a private estate about twenty Ks from here. You ca you can't go in there. He is heavily guarded. Where? Number twelve Brathal Road. Uh, it's, it's in Martha estate, Ramon said, crying you are in such agony. It's not fair, is it? Pirat said. Yalla, Rahman lamented. From the fact that you didn't recognize my daughter, I can tell you didn't touch her. But you are part of the system, my friend.
1: Please, please, don't kill me. I, I beg you, I beg you.
0: You need to go. Rahman screamed at the top of his lungs. This is the middle of nowhere, my friend. Not even God can hear you. Vidant swung the sock to smash in Rahman's nose. You might not believe this, but this time God's taken a contract out on you, my friend. Slowly and methodically, Virat broke every bone in the man's body, just as he had promised. And when he was done, he chopped his head off and stuffed it into a gym bag. Then Virat drove back to the city. Virat walked the streets of Sanali, crying and pining for his darling girl. He kept seeing Anya in the crowd of people. The night was a charade of coloured light bulbs, gas lanterns and distorted radio music. Skimpily clad young women from balconies and on the streets solicited him. Anya's face morphed into their faces. Drunken revellers thronged these lecherous provinces of the night. He didn't know how he was going to reconcile his failure to protect his daughter. Blood alone was not going to help him cope with the pain. Suddenly, there was a commotion in front of a building. Hidart pushed through the crowd. A pimp was beating a girl dressed in a black mini-skirt and a yellow bikini top. People gathered around, watching him beat the skinny girl to pulp. Something broke inside Vidat. He stepped forward and tapped the man on his shoulder. When the pimp turned around, he punched the man in his trachea and walked away. The man fell on the ground and writhed in agony croaking unintelligible words. The shell-shocked crowd went silent for a minute and then cheered as the injured woman stood up on shaky legs, wiped the blood of her face and spat on the pimp and kicked him in the ribs. Virat eventually ended up in a bar and drank whiskey till he could forget Anya's face. They are saying Rancha was killed by a rival who had it in for him, and the IR assassination was a takeover attempt by Punin his once faithful dog. There was another death too, a supplier and his wife, and no one seems to have noticed, the informant said. The phone line crackled and cut out every few minutes. Too many coincidences. Sai Kalipat said. These things happen in our business all the time. The curse of the crooked and the greedy. I would still be cautious. I appreciate the advice. The boss is very happy with your work. He wants it to stay that way. Good to hear. Keep us posted. Sai Kali Bhatt threw the phone on the couch and picked up the piece of paper on the coffee table. The date of the sacrifice was written on it in Guruji's neat handwriting. He could see it, the virgin's head separating from her body and falling on the ground, rolling many times as it sprayed blood on the sacred ground. An offering... The Divine Mother couldn't refuse. The very thought of it filled him with confidence, and the dread he felt after the phone call slowly dissipated. Ma Kali would never let him down. She was his iron shield, his impenetrable armour. Sai Calibag was only 20 minutes into his game of golf when the courier arrived with a box. The private course was conveniently located behind his palatial manor. The grass was imported from Ireland, and the design was by the same firm that built golf courses for the Saudi royal family. Sai was in his early forties, but did not look a day older than thirty. He sported a crew cut that suited his almost square face. He had a thick moustache that was neatly trimmed twice a day. He was wearing a white polo shirt that framed his lean figure, cream chinos and Ray-Ban aviators. His caddy, a skinny man with grey hair and loose skin, held an umbrella in one hand and a glass of chilled mojito in the other. Sai grabbed the glass, had a quick sip, and was setting up his shot when his personal assistant, Surinder Chawla, who was in his thirties with a mixed martial arts fighter's physique, called out his name. Khalisab, Korea. They need your signature. Delivered for your eyes only. Sai snorted, trying to hide his annoyance. He continued setting up his shot. A man... In a yellow uniform, with a messenger bag slung over his shoulder, was standing next to Surinder holding a large box. He watched Sai expectantly. Sai tried to refocus. Then he stopped and threw his club down in anguish and grabbed the glass again and drank from it. He gave the glass back to the caddy. When he tried to walk behind him with the umbrella, Sai waved him off. He grabbed the box from the courier and signed the paperwork. Stay, Kalisab said to the man. You sure this is not going to explode, yeah? Sai asked Surinda. Surinda smiled. It is clean, boss. We got the dogs to check it at the gates. And we used the explosives detector as well. Still, Sai said. Raising his eyebrows. Hey, you open it, Sai said to the courier. The poor man stepped back hesitantly. Uh, It's for you. I can't. I am not approved, sir. Open it, son. I don't believe in the saying, never shoot the messenger, Sai said. The man looked into Sai's eyes and realized instantly that he wasn't joking. He pulled out a box cutter from his pocket and cut through the cello tape. He opened the cardboard flaps and peered in. His eyes registered disbelief for a second. Then he screamed and dropped the box and ran away. Sai slowly walked towards it and opened it and flinched. He signaled to Surinder to have a look the faithful servant placed his hand inside and pulled out the decapitated head of Inspector Rahman. Sai studied the head for a second. It's a message. Surinder looked inside the bag and said, I don't see a sheet of paper, boss. The head is the message. Someone is gunning for me. And I'm pretty sure this is not the first business card he has given out, Sai said. The attacks on Ranjasech. The Ayers. Surinder thought aloud. Sai Kalibak nodded, looking at the head bobbing in Surinder's hand. Surinder, say hello to our invisible enemy. What was all that commotion? Sigh's bedridden stepmother, Kamala asked him. She looked at him warily, as he gave her a spoonful of goat soup. She was a frail woman, dressed in a white maxi with floral patterns. She had lost all her hair from the chemotherapy to counter her aggressive cancer. Her lips were parched, and the grey skin hung loose around her eyes. Someone send me a severed head, Sai said. Kamala coughed and spat some of the soup out. Sai wiped her mouth with the towel. I'm I'm sorry. I shouldn't have mentioned that while you were eating. What? Who? Who? A policeman on our rolls. Gang rivalry? Kamala asked. Must be. This is not the first time someone has murdered one of my associates and sent me a body part. I am worried about you, Camilla said, touching his face. I've ordered the boys to scour the city. It's only a matter of time before my faithful hounds follow the clues, starting with the courier service that delivered the head, and get to our mystery man. He sent it via courier? He... He sounds like a madman, a dangerous man. Be careful, my love. Always. Sai grabbed Kamala's hand and kissed it. The woman winced. Even a small peck on her hands sent waves of pain through her bones. She didn't understand why he was keeping her alive. Sai placed the soup on the table nearby and stroked her hand gently. This is a waste of time. All this expensive treatment, she said. Kalima will not let us down. My prayers, the sacrifice will yield results. You, you should stop the brutal ways in which you try to appease Makali. Sometimes, sometimes, I think I'm suffering for all your sins. A flash of anger lit up Psycullibuck's face. Don't say that! Her power has kept you alive this long. My prayers and the power of sacrifice have sustained your spirit. Painful treatments and chemicals have kept me half alive. That is the hard truth. I am preparing one for this weekend. I believe in the power of Markali. She will see you through. Why? Why have you kept me alive? Why? Why do you do all these things for me? Because, because, because I love you, Sai said. Because
1: you're the only woman I've ever loved.
0: Sai had never touched her in a sexual way, but he was a devoted husband to her. He had rescued her from his evil father and given her the life of a princess. And even now, as she approached death, he was fighting to win her back from the jaws of a certain dire fate. A little tear escaped his eyes. Sai pressed his lips against Kamala's and tasted death. An old woman adorned in fading tattoos and tribal jewellery which included huge earrings and nose strings led Gulab to a cement tank full of water just outside the shed. Punicami sat on the veranda of the house opposite the shed, sharpening his large hunting knife and watching her. This was where the animals drank from, Gulab thought, looking at the tank. The water was clear and reflected a sombre sky. The woman spoke to her in a tongue she did not understand. She pointed to Gulab's clothes and pulled on it. When Gulab glanced in the direction of Kondichami, he was immersed in sharpening his knife. The woman nodded encouragement. Gulab pulled off her clothes and stood stark naked. A cold breeze gave her goosebumps. The woman picked up a steel mug from the ground and collected some water from the tank and poured it on the young girl. Gulab relished the feeling of water falling on her skin, which badly needed some care. Her wretched journey had left her body dry and full of insect bites. She felt beautiful for just a moment as she luxuriated in the feeling of water caressing her. Considering her precarious situation, she felt strangely at ease. The woman lathered her body with soap and cleaned her with a sponge made from coir. She dried her with a couple of towels and gave her a clean skirt and blouse to wear. As soon as she put the clothes on, the woman guided her to the steps of the house and sat her down. The woman rubbed scented oil on her hair and combed it straight. Gulab sobbed silently at the thought of her mother fussing over her hair. This was the nicest Gulab had been treated in days. The woman sang as she pampered Gulab. She didn't understand the words, but it sounded beautiful. She liked to think it was a lament for a lost girl. Suddenly, she noticed an object on the ground next to where she was seated. She turned her head sideways to check on Purnachami, who was behind them. He was busy looking in the distance, fanning himself with a white tail. She pretended she was scratching her feet, and when the woman wasn't looking, Gulab picked up a small, sharp piece of metal, as long as her palm. It looked like it had detached from farming equipment. When she was done, the woman led her to a room in the house with no windows. It was twice the size of her previous residence in the cowshed, shed, and the only piece of furnishing was a bed with a single-sized mattress on it. The fresh sheets smelled like roses. Gulab was glad she didn't have to go back to the shed. The woman said something to her and shook her head and smiled. Gulab wondered what message she was passing on to her. Why was she being treated so well? Maybe they would sell her to the highest bidder at a slave auction, she thought. She had heard of virgins being sold to criminals before. The old woman closed the door with a smile. She heard her talking to Punichami outside. Gulab looked at the piece of metal concealed in her hand. Escape was never far from her mind. When she stopped hearing voices outside, she checked for escape routes. Nothing. The door was bolted from outside and she couldn't manipulate it with her new tool. There were no windows, just two small ventilation ducts close to the roof. She sat on the mattress and enjoyed the scent of her skin. She placed the metal object next to her on the bed and plotted There were plenty of faithful dogs ready to provide information as soon as size people put their feelers out for Rahman's movements over the last few days. The bartender at Barbed Wire had seen the policeman talk to a stranger, an out-of-towner that he had classified as looking dangerous. Surinder decided it was a lead worth investigating. Surinder had personally gone to collect the unsuspecting policeman, Nair was in the middle of ringing people to trace Rahman's whereabouts when a red Mahindra pulled up outside the station. Surinder stepped in through the front door and signaled to Nair like he was calling a dog. Nair put on his police cap and approached Surinder. What is it, Surinder saab? Nair asked. We might have some information about Brahman's disappearance, Surinder said. How do you guys know about it? We haven't released that information to the press, Nair said, pretending to be surprised. I need you to come and have a look at something, Surinder said. Do you know where he is? Nair asked. This has to be on the low, Surinder said. Okay, Nair said, nodding. Come with me. Surinder drove him to a clothing warehouse Sai owned on the outskirts of Sonali. Nair was panicking by the time the car stopped in front of the warehouse. Come in, Surinder said as he opened a rusty door. Nair hesitated for a second. He then pulled out his mobile. I want to just call my family and let them know where I am. Surinder grabbed the phone from his hand. We can't let you do that, Surinder said. Okay, 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 Nair said fearfully. They stepped inside the dimly lit warehouse, full of machinery used to make clothing. Racks of t-shirts and jeans hung from the assembly line, like the skin of corpses without their flesh. Uh, What are we looking at? Nair said, Keep walking. Surinder urged him on. They walked further into the factory. Suddenly, two thugs dressed in factory overalls slammed baseball bats into the back of Nair's legs. He fell down on the floor, screaming. They lifted Nair up and dragged him to the floor supervisor's office. A dentist chair. Complete with storage space for tools and a large light overhead, was set up in the middle of the room. They strapped Nair's hands to the chair. Surinder pulled out a kerchief and wiped the saliva, sweat, and tears of Nair's face. You see, in the end, it was easy for us to come to the conclusion that it had to be you who gave up your boss and got him killed. You have never liked him, and his ways, and his affiliation with us. All we need for you to do is confirm and tell us. Who are you working with? Nair was in too much pain to even register surprise at the fact that his boss was dead so soon, and that Sai's men had suspected his involvement. He shouted the names of his daughters. Syrinder chuckled. Make this easy for us. Tell me, who were you talking to at the barbed wire bar a couple of days ago? I I can't remember. I I can't. I I, I spoke to a lot of people there. So you don't deny being there? No, no. The bartender told us you were speaking to this guy who uh, looked like What were his exact words? Ah, a mean truth, Nair gulped. So, I want you to think hard and come up with some credible answers. Surinder said. I don't know. I don't know anything, Zab. Pull them out, Surinder said to the men in the overalls. Nair shrieked in agony as the thugs methodically pulled out his nails. Blood oozed from the tips of his fingers. By the time they had reached the thumb on his left hand, Surinder made another threat. We will do this to your family. Stop! 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 I will tell you what I know. I will tell you. Nair said. Good man. Surinder pulled up a chair, sat on it, and clasped his hands together. I am all ears. Naya told him everything about his encounter with Virat, and how he had helped him. Clean him up, and drop him at the hospital. We don't want two dead cops on the same day. Too much heat. Kali Saar, born-like investigators from Indraprastha city, sniffing around as part of an official investigation. Surinder said to his men. He flipped open his mobile and sent a text message, and then he dialed a number. It's him. You got the description. Find him. He has files on the boss. Consider him as an extreme threat. hmm Yes. When you find the location, let me know ASAP. Gulab readied the steel object in her hand as soon as she heard someone open the door. She hid it behind her back as the key turned in the lock. The old woman opened the door and smiled at her. She had some folded clothes in her hand. Gulab couldn't do it. She could not find the strength to stab the smiling old woman. She didn't want to spill an innocent person's blood. Sure, the old woman worked for the kidnappers. But Gulab didn't know her circumstances. Pundichami appeared behind the old woman. He was wearing a bright white shirt and dhoti. His thick gold chain hung around his neck like an ornamental snake. Put it on quickly. We are leaving. Bringing down this giant man with her small weapon was going to be nearly impossible. Gulab decided she was going to reserve the stabbing for the bastard who had put her through this misery, the person she was being sold to. The old woman placed the clothes on her bed and extended her fingers to indicate she will be back in five minutes. Gulab picked up the clothes and examined them a red silk half blouse with a matching skirt. Red, the color of blood the colour of revenge. Surinder could see the motel in the distance. Kapoor's Inn, a three-storied, run-down mom-and-pop joint with ageing plaster walls, asbestos roofing, and gutters full of dead leaves that hadn't been cleaned in years. The windows of some of the rooms were cracked. Rain had damaged the paintwork and left the building looking like a diseased organ. It didn't take long to trace Virat's whereabouts, because he had gotten into a fight at another bar and challenged some of the patrons to come to the motel if they wanted a piece of him. Surinder had five of his best men surround the motel. They were waiting for his orders to kill Virat. Surinder parked in the motel car park, got out and switched on his Bluetooth headset. Are you guys ready? He said. Yes, said the others. Svirinder then rang Sai Kalibat. Sai picked his phone on the fifth ring. You found him, Sai said. Yes, looks like a thug for hire who doesn't know how to cover his tracks. Surinda said. Amateur. <laughs> I suppose it won't take long then. Sai Kali Bhakt said. You know me. I am thorough. I will be at the temple. The ceremony is late in the afternoon. Sai Kali Bhakt said. I. Advice against this, boss. It might not be safe. With all these issues, Surinder offered. Well, you are about to bust the bastard. What is the problem then? Sai was annoyed with Surinder's response. It's just that we don't know if others... Surinder began. I am not asking for your advice. Finish the job and get back to me ASAP. Guruji said there isn't another auspicious time in months. Sai said. How many gats do you have at your disposal? Surinder asked. I have the usual four. I'll be fine. Sai said. I will drive over there with the men... As soon as I'm done here, boss, Surinda said. Thanks. What would I do without you, Surinder? Sai Sy said. Then he cut the phone. Virat felt bad about baiting Nair to seek out Sai Kalipakt's goons. He hoped the man had given up the truth without playing too tough. Virat knew, once Sai mobilised his goons, it would only be a matter of time before the bartender at barbed wire pointed them in his direction. He was also counting on the fact that given the dire nature of the threat, Sai would send his best men after him, the kind of men who knew Sai's movements intimately. Virat had read about his right-hand man, Surinder Chawla, from the files. He was hoping Surinder would be the one leading the hit. Virat made it a point to visit a nearby bar to start a fight. He did this after he posted Rohman's head to announce the fact that he was staying at the motel in room number 21. Virat broke into the unoccupied room number 23, which was down the corridor from his own room. It offered him a good view of the door to his room, the corridor leading up to it, and the staircase that led to level 1. There was only one way to get to him, and he wanted it covered. He was not stupid enough to wait for the killers to crash into his room and take him down in a hail of bullets. Virat closed the door, and looked through the keyhole. He had a clear view of the corridor and the door to room 21. He moved to the window and observed the car park. That was the other reason why he chose to break into this room. The windows of room 23 offered him a good view of the front of the building and the car park. There was a jeep and two ambassador cars in the lot the red-hot midday sun was burning up the surroundings in a shimmering haze. Virat pulled out his browning high power and loaded a cartridge and placed it back in his black Harley-Davidson leather jacket with custom holsters for guns. He was also wearing a black V-neck T-shirt and blue Levi's denim. There was a snow globe on the table beside the window. He picked it up, shook it, and watched the snowstorm inside the glass. When he looked out again, a black Mahindra SUV with tinted windows had pulled up. Five men emerged from them, dressed in khaki pants and t-shirts. They had matching black and red keffirs wrapped around their neck. They appeared to be on a diet of protein shakes, steaks and iron plates. Five guns were hired to kill me, Vidat scoffed. They entered the building and disappeared from his sight. Vidat went to the keyhole and looked out through it. No movement. He heard another vehicle pull up. He moved back to the window to check if there were further arrivals. Anything more than seven attackers and he would have to bail out. Virant loved the thrill of a kill and the challenge, but he was not stupid. That came with years of being on the job. Wisening up, his uncle used to call it. Getting rid of all that gung-ho shit you believed in as a young man. No one was invincible. Not to bullets and superior force. A man dressed in a blue silk shirt and brown pants exited the newly arrived red Mahindra. Virat remembered Surinder's face from the file Nair had given him. It's time. He pulled his gun from his jacket and moved to the door. Virat peered through the keyhole and waited. Surintha Chala walked towards the reception area with the beretta ready at his sight. The gang of killers he had hired for the job positioned themselves at the reception. They were busy intimidating the manager and the receptionist. We are Kalisab's men, so shut up and lay on the ground, one of them warned. The employees raised their hands and lay on the ground, shaking with fear. One of you go round and cover the back exit and the window of room 21, Surinder said. Three of you will make your way into the room, Surinder pointed to the chosen ones with his gun. Make sure you empty your cartridges into him. No one should ever dare anything like this again. And you stay with me at all times. He said to the biggest guy in the group. While Surinder knew how to fire a gun, he didn't believe in taking any chances. He positioned himself at the rear of the group. They proceeded up the stairs, in a single file, and reached the first level. They stopped and listened. The motel was quiet except for the occasional creaking sound coming from the crappy air conditioning. They climbed the stairs to the second level. Once they were at the top of the stairs, three men proceeded in the direction of room 21. The fourth gunman was standing directly in front of room 23. Surinder stood beside him nervously balancing himself at the top of the stairs. The three-man assault team looked out through the window at the end of the corridor right next to room 21. The gunman covering the back exit and the window signalled OK. One. Two. Three. The assault team Counted silently and kicked in the door. They entered the room, gun splicing. At that very moment, Birat shot the gunman waiting in front of room 23 through the door. Surinder, who was jolted by the unexpected gunshot, fell back and landed hard on the stairs and rolled down. His left arm Coming down at an odd angle, and his head banging against the hard wood. His gun fell through the railing, landing in the reception area with a loud clatter. His mobile slipped from his pocket and landed on the stairs. Virat decided to leave Surinder alone for a second. He proceeded to room number twenty-one and mowed down the three men who were searching for Virat in the bathroom, the closets, and under the bed. Virat then raced down the stairs. He picked up Surinder's mobile on the way. Surinder was limping down the reception as fast as he could. The side of his face was bleeding. His left arm was sore. In his panic to escape the motel, he didn't realize that Virat had descended on him like a hawk. Virat grabbed Surinder by the collar and took him past the motel employees who lay in a pool of urine, watching the proceedings with terrified eyes. The man who was supposed to cover the back door realised things had gone pear-shaped when he heard the screams of some of his maids from room 21. He decided to rush the motel from the front entrance only to find Virat walking out with Surinder. The man fired his locally made pistol and even with its poor build the bullet managed to graze Virat's right shoulder. Virat winced in pain and let go of Surinder's shirt for a second. Surinder seized the opportunity to plant his elbow in Virat's sternum. Virat fell down wheezing and cursing and before he could raise his gun and fire, Surinder jumped into his red Mahindra. The surviving hired goon started firing wildly and the bullets landed on the floor all around Virat who wriggled like a worm on the floor to avoid being shot. Virat gripped his gun in both arms, took a deep breath and shot the attacker right through the neck Blood sprayed out of his wound, and the man fell flat on the ground, making gurgling noises. His hand and the gun in it twitched sporadically. Surinder, meanwhile, was having trouble starting the car. Virat got up and started walking towards him. His gun raised, finger on the trigger. The red SUV came to life and Surinder slammed the accelerator. The vehicle shot through the landscaped gardens and exited the compound, clipping two other vehicles in the parking lot and damaging their front bumpers. Virat opened the door of the black SUV which belonged to the hired killers he had killed in room 21. He was relieved to find the keys were still there. The hired goons had placed it there just in case they needed to make a quick exit or chase Virat down. Virat jumped in and started the car. The engine came alive without hesitation and Virat was soon in hot pursuit of Versailles' right-hand man. The man who could take him to his daughter's killer. Surinder raced through the streets of Senauli like he was on fire. He constantly honked his horn as he navigated the busy streets full of cows and merchants looking for a bargain, and labourers wandering in the afternoon haze. The decrepit road did not help his course; His pace was slowed down by bumps and potholes the size of mini-ponds. Surinder had to warn his boss. He checked both his pockets and realised that he had lost his mobile phone in the struggle. Shit! He whacked the dashboard. He could see Virat in the rear-view mirror, racing after him like a hound. Virat smashed into a bullock cart and wiped out a couple of street stalls in his attempt to gain on Surinder. Surinder was nearly taken out by a large goods truck. As he raced through an intersection, he weaved through the heavy traffic and took one of the side roads to the left. He tore through at high speeds, racing dust and rubbish in his wake. Pedestrians and vendors cursed him as they covered their faces and ran to avoid the speeding vehicle. He turned left, then two rights and three lefts till he arrived at the old quarter of the town. The buildings on both sides of the street were crumbling. Most businesses had moved to newer buildings in the middle of the town. Only a few had stayed back, holding on to heritage, and dying hope that the good old times would return. There was no one in Surinder's rear-view mirror. He thought he lost Virat, so he slowed down to reconsider his options. "'Should I go to our warehouse in the vegetable market "'or drive out to our clothes factory in the outskirts of the city?' "'He listened to the slow rumbling of the engine as it coasted "'and kept an eye on his mirrors. "'Hope I have lost him.' "'As if to answer his question, the black Mahindra appeared again. "'Surinder pressed down on the accelerator.' Quick gear changes took him to dangerous speeds as the chase resumed. He was coming to the end of the road. To the left was the route to the vegetable warehouse. The one on the right would take him to the clothes factory where he had interrogated Nair. Whatever his choice, the important thing was to get to a phone and warn Sai. Some of his men might also be at one of the two locations – Maybe he could bring the bastard down after all. He didn't want to risk driving to the temple where the sacrifice was to take place. Or Sai's manor, just in case his boss was at one of the venues. Exposing Sai to danger was out of question. By this point, it was fairly clear to Surinder that they were not dealing with an ordinary thug. He had to decide which way he was going to turn soon. Because straight ahead was a steep drop down a small hill that ended in a garbage dump. He decided to head in the direction of the market. As he turned left, Surinder crashed into a minivan that was backing out of a workshop. The van driver looked out of his window to abuse Surinder, But then he realised who he was dealing with and he reversed quickly and sped away in fear. But before Surinder could step on the gas again, Virat slammed into his side and pushed him for several metres before toppling the SUV over the edge. Surinder did not have his seatbelt on, so he was tossed around like a rag doll as the jeep rolled down to the bottom of the hill. The vehicle crunched and creaked and banged as it continued its descent. Shrubs and broken glass and stones made their way through the shattered glass. When the vehicle finally came to a stop, Surinder could feel blood pouring down his face. The stench of garbage overwhelmed his nostrils. I don't want to die on a pile of garbage he thought, as pain clawed his broken body. Virat climbed down the hill, holding on to shrubs and the exposed roots of trees. The overturned car was leaking fuel, and he hoped that it wouldn't catch fire before he got there. His black clothes were covered in dust by the time he got to the vehicle. The place stank like hell. Virat bent down and looked into the car. Surinder was hanging upside down, his hands still on the steering wheel. Rivulets of blood crisscrossed his face and arms. He looked at Virat with pathetic eyes and tried to say something, but then he coughed blood. Virat pulled him out of the wreckage. Surinder shrieked in pain as Virat dragged his body on the ground. I could have let you burn in that car. But that would mean I would never find out Sai Kali Bakht's location. Virat said. I will never betray my boss. Surinder said feebly. Even if I shoot you in the kneecaps. Virat said before proceeding to do as he said. Tell me or I will keep doing this. There are other bits on you that can hurt even more, Virat said. Fuck you, man. You don't know who you're messing with. What a loyal dog, Pirat said, and shot him in the other leg. <coughs> Not feeling so loyal now, hey? The agony of broken bones, the lacerations from the crash, and the wounds from Virat's bullets were starting to take a toll on him. He's going to pass out soon, Virat thought. You are wasting my time. If you don't open your mouth in the next ten seconds, I will put you back in the car just so that I can watch you burn to death, Virat said. Fuck you, Surinder said. You know what? I admire a man who prizes loyalty even in his dying moments. Do it! Do it, you coward! Surinder said. Charming. Virat responded. Surinder's mobile rang in Virat's pocket. Virat looked at the number. It said, Kali Saab. Surinder was shocked to see his phone in Virat's hand. Virat let the phone ring out. He then got a message indicating there was a voicemail. He listened to the message. I have reached the temple. Pondichami will be here soon with the girl. Just checking to see how your operation is going. I am sure you are in the thick of the action. Call me if you need anything. Vidart laughed. There was a confused look on Surinder's face. Why are you laughing? Because I have a friend who can find where the call originated from. He sells guns and surveillance equipment to nefarious people, and he's resourceful, which means he can find out where your boss is in a matter of minutes. Which means... I don't need you. Virat pulled Surinder up and hauled him back to the damaged car and threw him in a puddle of petrol on the ground. Surinder rolled off it in an attempt to escape, but in the process was covered in more fuel. I am tempted to cut your head off like you did to my daughter, but I know that the pain is only momentary. To burn alive is to be in hell. Vidard slowly walked backwards, watching Sai's crony squirm like a worm. Vidard took out his favourite lighter and lit it and threw it on the screaming man. He then climbed up the hill as Surinder went up like a torch. In a few minutes... The car exploded, shouting debris in all directions. I am coming for you, Sai. The shrine was 400 years old. It was a small, adobe building which featured ornate sculptures of various demons. Its wooden doors opened to a small black statue of Mark Kali, bald, with bulging eyes and tongue thrust out, thirsting for blood. She was anointed in garlands of crimson flowers and several golden lamps burned in front of her. A rectangular block of cement, stained red from years of bloody sacrifice, stood in front of the entrance to the shrine. Located just outside Sinoli, the temple was nestled on top of a small mountain called Suketu, and devotees had to drive up a gravel track and climb 50 steps to reach the top. King Bimbisara, who reigned over the mountain kingdom with an iron grip, Several centuries ago built the shrine. He was an ardent devotee of Ma Kali and sacrificed virgins on every full moon night to ensure prosperity and long life. The story goes that he had forgotten to perform the sacred ritual before going to war with a neighboring kingdom, and he was trampled to death by an elephant on the field. Times had changed. There were new kingdoms and new kings. Sai Kali Bhakt was the king of this border town, and he had preserved the rituals of his predecessor. So fervent was his belief that for the last 15 years, he had never missed a sacrifice. The burgeoning flesh trade across the border ensured he had plenty of offerings for Markali. The big bosses considered it a little bonus for Sai's assistance with their border trade. Presently, Sai Kali Bhakt was waiting at the shrine with his astrologer for the offering to turn up. He was wearing a white dhoti. A silk embroidered white shawl hung over his naked, muscular upper body. What do you think, Guruji? Will my enemies bring me down this year? Sai inquired. My son! That is why we are ensuring that Maji is pleased with us. She will certainly be delighted by what I have to offer today. Jay Mataji, praise her! Praise her indeed. I hope this year she brings us more success and cures my aunt of her wretched illness. She will! She will! Trust in her son and she will bless you. Four bodyguards with Uzis stood guard around the shrine. They wore green camouflage pants and t-shirts and outdoor winter jackets. The only road to the temple meandered away from the main highway just before the border crossing and led up to the mountain to the base of the stairs. The car is coming! One of the guards shouted out as he glanced the valley. Give it to me, Sai said and grabbed the binoculars of the guard. He focused on the black ambassador car approaching the temple. 55 minutes earlier. Three people from the workshop were lined up at the top of the hill watching the inferno when Virat climbed up. He pointed a gun at them and asked them to lie on the floor on their tummies. They complied while muttering under their breath. Virat then placed a call to Leduvinayak. I'm on my way to a massage parlor. Can this wait? Lidu sounded annoyed. Now, super urgent. It will cost more? Virat told him exactly what he needed. Ledu Vinayak was more than happy to find the coordinates for the location of the temple, for double the sum he usually charged for the service. Good thing I have a large retirement fund, hey? Vidat said. Ledu laughed at the other end of the phone line, cheekily. Virat hung up, removed the SIM from the phone, noted the number and put the phone back together. He then texted the IMEI number to Ledu along with the time of the last call and Sai's phone number. One of the men from the workshop tried to get up. Virat kicked him down. Only if you don't value your beautiful head, he said. Ledu came back with a location for Virat in less than ten minutes. Chinese second-hand signal trackers are fabulous, Ledu said. What would the criminals of this country do without you, boss? Virat said. They would suck cock. (laughs) Ledu liked his ego being massaged once in a while. You know this site is on top of a mountain, don't you? Virat marked the location on the map app on Surinder's phone. Yup, I see it. It's about ten clicks from your current position. Thanks, Ledu. I can always count on you. Always. Virat reloaded cartridges in his two guns, and placed one in his jacket holster and strapped the other one onto his ankle. Virat then walked to the SUV he was driving. He searched inside it. He found binoculars and a pair of Cuban cigars. He threw the packet of cigars to the men lying prostrate on the ground. Consider it a bribe. He quickly glanced at Sudinder's burning car downhill before climbing into the SUV. Binard left behind the old district and the shanty towns, and he was soon driving through an arid landscape surrounded by mountains that towered over him like mythical fortresses. He turned left from the highway and continued on the dirt road. The shrine soon came into view. Virat parked his car on the side of the road when he was about a kilometre away from his destination. Then he climbed one of the small hills nearby and glassed the temple. Virat could make out some men with guns. He then heard the sound of a car behind him. He turned around and focused the lens on the road. A black ambassador car was heading up his way. Sai's goons? Innocent pilgrims? Could this be the Punachami Sai was talking about? Is he bringing the victim to the sacrifice? Vidant decided to check out the car. He tucked the binoculars in his jacket and walked towards his SUV and waited. The driver must have recognised the SUV because he slowed down the vehicle even before Virat had a chance to wave it down. A large man, with a huge golden chain around his neck, sat in the front. A young girl sat in the back, dressed in a red blouse and skirt. Her hands were tied at the wrist. Where is Karat? Buonajami said. He is busy with something else. Problems in the warehouse. Virat bluffed. Oh, yeah? There is a landslide up ahead, Virat said. You should head back. We will call you when it is cleared. The man looked at him suspiciously. His brows furrowed, and Virat, who was adept at reading body language, knew Punachami was about to attack. Virat pulled the knife from the back of his pants and thrust it in the direction of the driver's neck. Punachami grabbed Virat's hand, keeping the blade well clear of his neck. The two struggled, Virat trying to push the blade close to the man's neck and Punachami resisting it with his immensely powerful arms. Virat growled as he tried to overpower his enemy. Spittle was flowing down Punachami's lips from the effort. Virat looked in the direction of the girl sitting behind, as if to say, a little help. To his surprise, she produced a piece of metal from her bound hands and stabbed the man in his neck. Pundachami's iron grip loosened, and Virat stabbed him straight through his Adam's apple in one lightning blow. The big man widened his eyes and groaned. His tongue flicked up and down as blood poured from the sides of his mouth and the wounds in his neck. Then he keeled over the steering wheel. Who are you? the girl asked. I am a vengeful father, and I suppose you are the sacrificial lamb. Gulab started crying. Where are you from? Indraprastha city. How did you end up here? I was kidnapped. I had a daughter once. She was kidnapped too. And her head was cut off. And she ended up in a bin. I think they had similar plans for you. Gulab cried some more. virat felt sorry for the girl. What are you going to do? I'm going to kill the fuckers. She wiped her tears. I will drive you to the police station. I want to come with you. To see you kill the monsters. You're just a little girl. Revenge is not for you. I survived this long, didn't I? Mirat could see that the abuse this girl had suffered had transformed her, steeled her. He did not sense fear in her. Such was the resilience of the human heart. Some pure part of her wanted to run home crying, but a brave fire burned in her eyes. It was baying for vengeance. It's dangerous. You could get hurt. It's a one-way ticket for me, Virat said. When you get there, they will kill you instantly if you don't have me. Virat considered her statement for a second. The gunmen on the mountain were going to pop him as soon as he approached if he didn't have the girl. Virat also didn't have his sniper rifle with him, so taking them out from a distance was out of question. You are a brave girl, Virat said. He opened the passenger door and let her out. He sliced the rope on her wrist carefully to make sure that he would be able to put it back on her arm again, loosely. This was his last chance to avenge his daughter. If he could come out of this saving the girl's life as well, that would be a bonus. He pulled out his daughter's photo from his wallet. This is her. Gulab looked at it and smiled. She is beautiful. Virat bit his lip in anguish. He felt a sharp pain slice through his heart.
1: Let's go to work then, he said.
0: He opened the door to the ambassador and pulled out the dead man. Just in case, they decide to check this car. He dragged the corpse to the Mahindra. Come on, help me, he said to Gulab. He opened the back of the SUV. Virat grabbed Punachami's upper torso and Gulab grabbed his legs and together they lifted him and put him in the back of the car. Virat inspected both himself and Gulab for any bloodstains. They needed to look presentable when they approached Sai. You're good," he said. Virat pulled out Sudhir's phone and texted Sai. "Job is done. The amateur bastard is dead. He did put up a fight, but he's now resting at the bottom of a pit with the rats for company." Virat then put the ropes around Gulab's hand in a loose knot. He pulled out a rug from the SUV and cleaned the bloodstains on the front seat of the Ambassador. When he was satisfied, he put on his ray bands and they jumped in the car. Birat watched Gulab in the rearview mirror looking for something in the back seat. What is it? The piece of metal. It's still in his throat. Gulab looked worried. Birat reached inside his side pocket and pulled out the little sharp switchblade he carried with him at all times and gave it to the girl. The same one he used to kill, Punin, Ayersgun. She clasped it firmly in her hand. Virat smiled. You got spunk, kid. You remind me of my daughter. Gulab smiled, perhaps for the first time since she was abducted. Don't worry. I will get you back to your parents. Virat said. Gulab nodded. Good girl. Are you ready? Yes, she said. He could sense the rage and anxiety in her. You will be fine. I know you will protect me, she said. They were two pilgrims out in the desert... Seeking revenge. So here's the plan, Vidat said. That doesn't look like Punachami, one of the bodyguards said pointing to the two figures coming up the stairs. Sai followed the guard's gaze. He must be sick. They must have sent a replacement, another guard said. Call him, Sai ordered. The man and the girl, meanwhile, slowly walked up the stairs. He is not answering the guard who dialed Pondichami's number said. Be wary, Sai said. The man heading in their direction was strongly built, tall and sported facial injuries. He looked like he had been through a tough time. When the two reached the shrine, the guards asked them to hold. Who are you? Sai asked Vidat. Pondachami sent me, Vidat said, asked me to drop off the girl. Vidat pushed Gulab towards Sai. How is that her? The astrologer asked, licking his lips. Sai pulled out his mobile phone, looked through the photos, till he found Gulab's snap. She looked like a frightened doe in the photo taken at Dandaset's brothel. Yes, that is her. Sai grabbed Gulab by the shoulder and shoved her behind him. You start the preparations, Guruji. I have a few questions for this fellow, Sai said. The astrologer smeared the sacrificial altar with sandalwood paste and showered it with flowers as he chanted mantras praising Ma Kali. Can I go now? Vidart said, pretending to be uncomfortable. You are in a hurry, Sai said. Well, I was told all I need to do is drop off that girl, Bidad said. I have never seen you before, Sai said suspiciously. I just moved to town. Pundachami was kind enough to give me some work. I was badly in need of some money. Anyway, my deal here is done. I'm going to head off now, Virat said. Virat was using the time to analyze the situation. The number of guards, their location, who else was armed, how far was Gulab from his reach. What happened to your face? Sai asked. Fight in a bar, Vidat said. You are not going to be of much use to punachami if you keep ramming your face into other people's fists, Sai said. Vidat shrugged and took a step backwards. What did you say your name was again? Sai asked. I didn't say my name. What is your name? Virat. Virat Meriman. Sai thought the name was familiar. I have heard that name somewhere, Sai said. Not likely. I am a ghost, Virat said. Then he let out a whistle. Gulab opened the blade hidden in her hand and stabbed Sai in his left buttock. Ah! Sai dropped to his knee, clutching his back. His lower back was on fire and pain racked his left leg. Sai instantly regretted not keeping a gun with him. Like clockwork, Birat removed his gun from the jacket and dropped two guards who were distracted by Gulab's attack. A third guard panicked, and he was spraying bullets at the shrine and the altar in an attempt to kill Gulab and Vidat. But the astrologer was caught in the crossfire, his body ridden with bullets. His saffron clothes turned crimson as blood seeped out of his wounds. Don't fire at me, you idiot! Sai shouted as he tried to crawl away. Gulab lay flat on the ground, screaming as bullets whisked past her head. Virat dove on top of Gulab, covering her body with his large frame and levelled his gun and put a bullet through the gunman's brains. The last remaining guard was hidden behind a rock and was still firing at them. Sai! pulled out the knife in his back with a scream. Then he tried to stand up. Vidard performed a quick somersault and placed his gun on the mob boss's forehead. Give me the knife, he said. Sai hesitantly gave it to him. You do not know who you are messing with, Sai said. Your friend Surinder said the same thing before I lit him up like Ravana at Dasera. Vidat said, You fucker. You fucker. What did you do to Surinder? Well, I will kill you. Sai said. You are the one with the gun against your temple. Vidat responded, Gulab crawled up to Virat and surveyed the carnage around her. You okay? he asked her. Gulab nodded. Come out, Virat said to the last remaining guard, or I'm blowing his brains out. The man came out with his gun raised. He walked towards them slowly. He was short and had thin hair that exposed his scalp. His thick beard was grey in places. There was a leathery quality to his mashed-in face. Stop there, Vidat said. He didn't want the man to come too close. Put your gun down, Vidat instructed. The man slowly placed the weapon on the floor. He stood up straight, hands to his side. Vidat caught up from the ground as well and stood facing him. Sai stretched his hands to grab Gulab, but Vidat fired on the ground right next to his head. Sai grabbed both his ears and let out a small shout. Don't tempt me, Vidat said to him. The guard then slowly moved to his right. Virat tracked his movements like a seasoned predator. The wind howled and brought with it a chill from the Himalayas. Gulab shivered. What are you known for? Virat asked the last gunman. For being a quick draw the man responded. How many men have you killed? Virat asked. I can't remember, the gunman said. Well, that makes two of us. I don't either. Sai was moaning in pain on the ground. He was watching both the men closely, hoping his gun for hire could trump the assassin. The gunman stopped moving, his eyes fixed on Virat's position. Virat knew the look, a killer prepping for the right time to draw. He shifted the gun in his hand. Sai pulled out his mobile phone and started dialing the number surreptitiously. Virat moved close to the injured mob boss while still keeping an eye on his opponent, and stepped on Sai's hand with his boot, crushing his fingers and the phone with it. Sai held. ''But you have no gun to draw on me,'' Vinat said to the last surviving gunman. ''This is true,'' the man said. ''Well then, i better get rid of mine,'' Virat threw his gun to the side. The man smiled. I lied, the gunman said. His hand reached the back of his pants. Me too, Virat said as he kneeled down. He pulled the second-hand gun strapped to the quick-release holster in his ankle and fired three shots at the man's chest. He waited in that position. Gun held up, his balance and posture perfect. The guard looked at him in surprise before he dropped to the ground. Who's faster, eh? Without quipped. Virat stood Sai Kali packed up and dragged him to the sacrificial altar. From the way he moaned and carried on, it was obvious that Gulab had done some serious damage to his back from the stab. The human body was a frail thing, full of weak spots and fatal pressure points. Virat had told the girl exactly where to stab Sai. A large machete with jasmine flowers wrapped around its handle leaned against the cement block. On the floor, to the right-hand side, the astrologer lay bleeding, close to death. Virat helped Sai rest his head against the altar. I have come a long way, looking for you, Virat said. Uh, who sent you? Sai so asked. No one, Vinod said. When people above me find what you have done to me, they will kill you like a dog. I am one of their most important assets. You fuck with their trade, they, they will make you pay, they will kill your family. Your pets. Everyone you ever smiled at. You stupid fuck. Sai said, spittle flying from his mouth. His face was caked with sweat and weariness had crept into his eyes. Vidart sneered at him. You still have time to leave. This can be forgotten. Sai said, Gulab, who was sitting on the floor all this time, got up and walked up next to Vidart and spat on Sai. Sai waved his hand in anger, trying to hit the girl. Vidart shot him in the ankle. Ah! (gasps) You still have time. I'm assuming you're here for the girl. Take her and leave and I am happy to forgive this. There will be no retribution. I promise, Sai said. I will take her without your permission, but I am here for a different girl. Virat threw his daughter's photo on Sai's lap. Sai looked down at the photo, and then back at Virat. The look of recognition was unmistakable. I know why you killed her. I know about your murderous religious practices, you sick fuck. What I want to know is why you threw her head in a bin in my city instead of burying her like the rest of the innocent girls you have killed over the years. Sally's eyes grew wide with fear. He looked around, eyes darting. He rubbed his sweaty hands against his leg. Blood was pooling around his feet from the bullet wound. Tell me, Vidat short Sai on his shoulder. Sai screamed in pain. Tell me, and I will make this quick (laughs) It was because of your wife. He pulled Sai up by his neck and pushed the gun's hot tip into the bullet wound on his shoulder. Sai's screams rose several decibels. You lying sack of shit! This had nothing to do with my wife.
1: Yes, yes,
0: yes, he screamed. It does! What do you mean? Vinat said, easing the pressure on his wound. Your wife was campaigning against sex trafficking and putting pressure on the police through media to crack down on some of the kidna- kidnappings in Indraprastha. They had warned her about it. They? Who? Vinod asked. People who don't exist. Sai laughed like a madman. They warned her that they would do this to my daughter? Vidat said. They had threatened her several times, but she didn't listen. Sai said. Vidat slapped Sai several times. Tell me who. Who ordered it? I, I prefer death, Sai said to him. Vidant believed him. Vidant's head was reeling. His blood was boiling. Ravina had not mentioned anything about the threat. She didn't suffer, Sai said. Your daughter. Vidant started breathing faster. Big tears welled up in his eyes. No one touched her. Sai lay helpless on the ground, holding onto his shoulder. He was bleeding to death, slowly. Look away, Gulab, Virat said. The girl looked at Virat. The veins on his neck were popping. Rage had colored his eyes red. Look! Away! Gulab turned and slowly walked towards the steps that would take her down to the bottom of the hill. Virat picked up the machete. Did she think of me in her last moments? Did she tell him I would avenge her? He thought. Sai looked up at Virat and smiled. (laughs) You are fucked. Vidat swung the machete. One month later, <phone rings> you know they won't let this go, Chetiar said on the phone. Virat was standing in front of his family's home, watching the two storied house slumber in the late afternoon sun. They will put the pieces together, and finally know it was you, Chetyar continued. If I were you, I would go somewhere and lay low. Listen to me, Virat. I have always considered you a brother. We have hideouts in Bangkok, Singapore and Dubai. All you have to do is say yes, Chetir said. Thanks for all your help. I would never have found the people who sent my baby to her death without your assistance. Virat switched off the phone and placed it in his pocket. He took a deep breath and crossed the road. He knocked on the door a couple of times and waited. The sun had set fire to the white roses in the garden. They made him think of Anya for some reason. The purity of white, perhaps. Davina opened the door in a pink top and jeans. They didn't exchange any words for a few seconds. Are you here to gloat that you have killed the people responsible for our daughter's death? Davina said. Davina was especially beautiful when she was indignant about something. It doesn't absolve you from the responsibility of her death. Don't you forget that, she said. I am here to tell you that I killed the man who took my Anya away from me. Before dying... He told me that he had instructions from faceless criminals who kidnapped and sold girls to send her severed head to Indraprastha because you refused to heed their threats. Ravina stood there in stunned silence. Her lower lip trembled. A wall of denial she had built around her disintegrated. I am sorry that I didn't treat you and the kids well. I have apologized for that many times over. But you lied to me. You didn't warn me that Anya's life was in danger. You failed to protect her. And then I failed to protect her. Davina crumpled down into a heap on the floor and leaned her head against the door as she wept. And I loved you once, Davina, but not anymore. Virat turned around and walked to his car. Gulab was waiting for him, in a yellow jumper and black jeans in front of Baskin and Robbins. Her hair was tied in a bouncy ponytail. She was beaming with joy as she waited for him. A far cry from the despondent soul that was trafficked from one place to the other, marked for a cruel fate. Virat had made her promise she would not tell anyone about him and how he rescued her from the temple before he dropped her off at her place. Her mother nearly fainted when she opened the door and saw her daughter. Her father broke down and refused to let go of her for nearly an hour. Since then, she had fed her family and the police a lie about how she was kidnapped and locked up in a basement for days by a stranger. One day, he failed to lock the door properly, and she escaped. She reported that she got a lift from a lorry driver, who dropped her off in the city. She told them she didn't remember any details about the man who kidnapped her or the location. Dozens of counselling sessions and police interviews later, she still stuck to the story all the while determined to protect her saviour, the man who had nearly sacrificed his life to snatch her from a dreadful fate. Gulab was often sad that she hadn't thanked Virat enough for what he had done for her. On their journey back to Indraprastha, Virat had opened up to her about his past, his sins. He even commented that she probably knew more about him than his own family. Before he drove off, he had given her his card and asked her to call him if she ever was in trouble. He stroked her hair before she exited the car, watching her face closely as if to sense some semblance of Anya's spirit in her. Her saviour, a man of incredible strength and integrity. A man ready to kill for love and to protect innocence. A man part devil, part angel. She delayed calling him for a month. She wasn't sure he would want to see her again, but she tried anyways. And he responded with a yes. Her heart skipped a beat when she saw him walking towards her. A tall beast of a man in light blue polo shirt and chinos that perfectly fit his muscular body. He gave her a big hug and kiss on her head. It's great to see you, my Rose, he said. She smiled and cried at the same time. He wiped away her tears and led her into the store. She ordered fig and caramel gelato while he had a plain vanilla ice cream. He asked her how her first day at university was. She asked him how his wounds were healing. There were two people who had shared an intimate dangerous experience. Chatting away, sharing milestones like recovering addicts. Virat would have given anything to have his daughter in front of him again. Eating ice cream, teasing him. This is good for now, he thought. Do you think about all those bad people? Gulab asked. I killed? Virat responded. She nodded. No regrets. Justice was done. She didn't press that line of questioning again. He had confirmed to her what she thought he believed what she needed to believe. They parted after nearly an hour, promising to keep in touch. She watched him till he disappeared into the crowd. Then she turned around and walked in the direction of the cinema to join her friends for a movie. A big smile was plastered across her face. She looked forward to seeing him again. that day, Virat put a quick call through to his uncle Arya, his guru, the man who taught him how to kill, how to make a living by extinguishing someone's breath, the man who had given him the tools to avenge Anya. Virat told him about the events of the past few months and what he intended to do after ending the call. He told his uncle that he had decided to listen to Chetiyar's advice. Uncle Arya gave him his blessings, told him that he was proud of his protégé. Virat looked at the two air tickets he had purchased one last time before he knocked on the window of Nirmala's car. She screamed in surprise. Virat, you frightened me to death, she said. Not as frightening as this, he said, extending the envelope. What's in here? Nirmala asked. We are going to Bali for some time, Virat said. His girlfriend screamed in excitement and dropped the envelope on the floor. She jumped out of the car and hugged him. Firat, I love you, she said, beaming. You will have a chance to prove that when we get home, he said. We have got them. You sure about this? Yes, positive. That and that doctor bitch. Good job. You know what to do. Three men stepped out of the car with their automatic guns and walked unhurriedly towards the couple, hugging and kissing each other. A real shame to catch them like this, the leader of the group thought. He aimed his gun and pulled on the trigger. The others followed suit.